please stand for the reading of God's word. Today's reading comes from Colossians chapter 1 verses from 15 through 20. And it can be found on page 983 in the Pew Bibles. I'm going to read it in Telugu first and then I'm going to read it in English. Colossians chapter 1 verse 15. Aina Adrusya Devuni Swarupiai Sarvasrishtiki Adi Sambutu Dayunadu Yelayanaga Akashamandunaviu Bumiandunaviu Drusya Mainavigani Adrusya Mainavigani Avi Simhasanamu Painanu Prabutum Lainanu Pradan Lainanu Adikaram Lainanu Sarvumnu Ainiandu Sujimpabadanu Sarvamunu aina dwaranu aina nu batiyes rujimpapadnu aina anitikante munduga unavadu aine samastamunaku adharabutudu sangamanu sheriramunaku aine sirasu aina ko anitilo pramukhyamu kalugu nimittamu aina adiyayundi mrutullo nundi lechutulo adi sambutudayanu aina yandu Sarva Sampurnata, Nivasampavalananu, Aina Silu Raktamucheta, Sandichesi, Aina Dwara Samastamunu, Avi Buloka Mandunavianu, Parloka Mandunavianu, Watinanitini, Aina Dwara, Tanato Samadana Parchukonavalananu, Tandri Abishtamainu. Verse 15 He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. The word of the Lord. Thank you, Prajwal. Thank you, choir. I don't know uh, how you are all doing. I was enjoying dancing upon injustice up there in the balcony. So uh, it, was a good, it was a good time this morning. So I uh, hope you're all doing well. This morning, as Pastor Greg has mentioned, uh, marks the beginning of Missions Month, which we do uh, every year through the month of November, uh, October, November. And I uh, want to make sure you... Uh, pay attention to the, the little booklet. You should have received one of those. You can see some of the various things that will be happening and going on throughout this month. We're doing some Sunday workshops, uh, which will take place during our normal Sunday school hours. So make sure you check those out. And then also draw particular attention to the worship night on November 16th. 
And so I think that will also be a great time of worship and prayer around the theme of missions. So I encourage you to mark your calendar uh, for some of those things. Well, the theme for this year's Missions Month is Bearers of the Image. And all throughout the month, we'll be focusing on what it means for us as Christians to bear God's image out into the world so that the world might know God. Bearing the image of God is what gives humanity its uniqueness with respect to the rest of creation. So the fact that humans have been made according to the image of God, which we read about in Genesis chapter 1, right there in the early account of God's creation of the world, humans are distinctly uh, marked off as bearing the image of, image of God. And this is why Christians don't think of humans as simply one of the highest mammals amongst all other mammals. Right? There's something distinct and unique about human beings made in the image of God. Bearing the image of God is what grants all human beings dignity and value regardless of race, age, wealth, socioeconomic standing, and beyond. But what does it actually mean to bear the image of God? And how does this relate to evangelism, to outreach, to the church's mission in the world? There have been a variety of thoughts throughout the history of the church about this concept of the image of God. So in the second century, Irenaeus was the bishop of Lyon. He said that the image of God was located in the human body, our physical form. In the third century, Origen, an Alexandrian priest and a very influential teacher in the early church, he went in the opposite direction and said that the image of God in humanity was the human soul. In the fifth century and then the 13th century, Augustine, the bishop of Hippo, and then Thomas Aquinas, who was a medieval theologian, both of them said that the image of God in humanity was located in the human mind or our rationality. In the 20th century, some biblical scholars have located the image of God in humanity's role, the function that humanity was created to play. So there's been a lot of opinions over the last 2,000 years about what the image of God means. But this morning, I, Gerald Heastan, will tell you <laughs> definitively what the image of God really is. Actually, all the ideas uh, that I ran through um, can be good and helpful. And I think that they're actually all true once we know how to weave them all together. But I want to take a step further back this morning, or as C.S. Lewis says in some of his writings, a step further up and further in into the divine nature, because we can talk all we want about the image of God that humanity bears, but first we need to talk about the image of God itself. Or perhaps better stated, the image of God himself. Because the image of God is not some mere aspect of humanity. The image of God is a person. In our passage this morning, the Apostle Paul tells us what the image of God is who the image of God is. The Son is the image of God. And we'll never really make progress talking or thinking about bearing the image of God if we forget that Jesus is the image of God that we bear. 
So before talking this morning about the characteristics or how we work this out in missions, I want to take some time to talk about Jesus as the image of God. Now, I warn you at the front end, this is going to take us deep into the deep end of the theology pool. And if you are not a strong theological swimmer, don't panic. I am wearing a life preserver named Jesus, so just grab onto any part of me or the life preserver that you can grab onto. He's going to keep us afloat. We're eventually going to get to a part of the pool where none of us can stand. So you will not be alone if you're there floating on the life preserver of Jesus. But there's some really rich stuff here. So don't panic as we get deeper and deeper and just check out and hop out of the pool. Our text this morning, which Prajwal has read for us, is Colossians 1, 15 through 20. And here's what I want to do this morning. This first half of the sermon, we're going to just stick right at the first phrase of verse 15. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. We're going to try to understand what that means. Then in the second half of the sermon, we're going to try to figure out what that means, that we bear the image of God, the image of God that is Jesus with respect to evangelism and outreach. All right? So let's get started with this first part of verse 15. What does it mean that Jesus is the image of God? In verse 15, Paul tells us that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. The term translated here as image is the Greek term icon, and it's where we get the English term icon, which is not surprising. An icon in Greek or in English, in its most basic sense, is a visible sign or marker of an invisible reality. The purpose of an icon, then, is to make something visible or understood that is inherently invisible or otherwise inaccessible. So the world is full of icons. This is not a distinctly Christian religious concept. Road signs, words, photographs, wedding rings, all of these are icons. Anytime one thing signifies some other thing, some deeper unseen thing, that's an icon. So icons are not just features of Christianity, and there are two basic kinds of icons in the world, extrinsic icons and intrinsic icons. And now the water is up to our waist here in the pool, so we're moving deeper. Extrinsic icons are external signs that are only arbitrarily related to the things that they signify. So let me give you an example of an, of an extrinsic icon. When we were over in the Middle East uh, last month, one of the things that I noted, particularly uh, while we were driving, though not exclusively while we were driving, is that very often the driver would, would make this signal. The driving in in certain parts of the Middle East, particularly in some of the city areas, uh, we could get kind of congested, not nearly as ordered as it is here in the States in some areas. And so there'd be honking and horns and intersections, people trying to weave their way through. And as someone was honking the horn at you, you would roll down your window and you would make this signal. And so our driver told us that this is an important signal to learn, it's an important sign or an image or an icon to learn in the Middle East because this means hang on means I see you, I hear you, I'm trying to get out of the way, give me a moment. So you can use it while you're driving, you can use it while you're waiting in line, whatever it might be. 
Now, in America, when we want to communicate that, we would say, hang on. We would do a one finger, right? Or when we're driving and someone's honking at us, we roll down our window, we'd stick out our finger out the window, we'd do a different finger, and that means something different. But if we want to mean the same thing that they mean in the Middle East, we do one finger, right? So this and this are both images or icons that point to the same reality, but they're different, they're distinct. You could make any hand gesture, could say, hang on, wait a minute. It could be this, right? It could be this, we could make it all up. And different cultures have different ways of signifying or iconifying, as it were, this reality of, hang on, I see you, take a moment. Because the hand gestures is only an arbitrary or externally connected between the visible icon and the thing that it signifies. That's an extrinsic icon. But an intrinsic icon is different. With intrinsic icons, the icon, the th or I would say this, the thing that the icon signifies is essentially related to it. And I hear the water's gonna get a little bit deeper. Augustine tells us that an intrinsic icon in some mysterious way participates or contains the very thing that it signifies. So Augustine uses the example of a kiss versus a ring as symbols of marital love at a wedding. A kiss is an intrinsic icon. A ring is an extrinsic icon. A ring as an extrinsic icon of marital love is arbitrary. Some cultures use a ring, some cultures use a necklace, some cultures use a ribbon. Different cultures use different symbols to communicate love. But a kiss as a sign of marital love contains the love that it signifies in a deeper and more profound fundamental way. Because the bridegroom is not just signifying his love to his bride when he kisses her at the wedding. He is actually loving his bride when he kisses her at the wedding. The kiss is an enactment, not just a sign. It's an enactment, an embodiment of the husband's love. All right, now here's another illustration. I think, think about the iconic nature of a person's body. The body conceived of properly is an icon or a visible symbol of the invisible person. We can't know or experience persons in the world except through the icon of his or her body. Because a person is invisible, it requires the visible body to reveal that person to others. And the iconic unity between a person and his or her body is so profound so profoundly intrinsic that to interact with a person's body is to interact with the person. Now, if you punched my car or my dog or my house, I don't know why you would punch my house, I wouldn't ask, why did you punch me? But if you punched my leg or my arm or my stomach, I would say, why did you punch me? Because my body isn't just some arbitrary external sign of me. My body 
in a very profound, intrinsic way, actually contains the thing that it signifies such that my body is me. I am my body, and my body is me. I'm not my house, I'm not my dog, I'm not my car, but I am, in a profound way, my body because my body is an intrinsic image of my person. And that's getting in the ballpark of what we mean when we say that Jesus is the intrinsic image or icon of God. And now we are fully in the deep end. None of our feet can touch the bottom as we begin to think about Jesus as an image of the eternal God. Because in a truer and deeper way than is possible with any earthly analogy or any earthly icon, Jesus as an icon of God is God. In the same way that my body as an icon of me is me. Which is to say that Jesus is the God that he iconically signifies. So this is what the Apostle John is getting at in John chapter 1, verse 18, when John says that no one has ever seen God. He's the invisible God. He can't be seen. But the only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. The only God who is at the Father's side has made the invisible Father visible. Not a second God, not another God, but the only God. Because there's only one God. This only God, who is not the Father, has made the Father known. This intrinsic unity between the Father and the only God who is at the Father's side is what Jesus speaks of in John 10.30 when he says, I and the Father are one. What the scriptures and the church fathers taught was that to see the image of God that is Jesus is in a profound and mysterious way to see God himself because Jesus is himself God. All right, now what do we do with all of this? We're still, we're kind of dog paddling in the deep end of the pool, trying to keep our head above water. What do we do with all of this? Before we go back to the shallow end, I want us to think about what this means uh, in a couple of different directions to my non-Christian friends and to my Christian brothers and sisters. Recall that an icon, the function of an icon, is to reveal something that is unseen. The Father sent Jesus into the world not simply so that we would know Jesus, but so that we would know the Father. Jesus is the self-revelation of God. He makes the invisible God visible in a way analogous to the way my body makes my person visible. And this is necessary because God, in his ineffable divine nature, is beyond humanity's capacity to know. He is simply too great. As Paul says in 1 Timothy 6.15, God dwells in unapproachable light. He's too bright for mortal eyes. He's too high for mortal reach. He's too deep for mortal thought. But God nonetheless wants us to know him. And so he wrapped himself in humanity and has revealed himself to us in the person of Jesus, the Son of God. Now before moving on here then to our next point, let me think about this. Let me help us think about this as an application to non-Christians and application 
to Christians. If you're here this morning as a non-Christian, I presume it's because you have some sense of wanting to find God. You're seeking God out. Maybe you're uh, coming with a spouse. Maybe you're coming with your parents. But if you're here voluntarily, maybe we'll say that, it's presumably because you want to have some understanding of God. And if that's you, then let me encourage you to begin your quest to find God with Jesus. You begin with Jesus. One of the things that sometimes you'll hear non-Christians say is, well, I like Jesus just fine. It's God that I don't care for, right? And they, they point out passages in the Old Testament or maybe even some parts of the New Testament that, that are objectionable to them and that they find distasteful. And so they, they throw out Christianity. But Christianity teaches that Jesus is the full and living manifestation of God. What you see in Jesus is what you get in God. But you have to begin with Jesus. We begin our journey into God through the person of Jesus. So if you want to know what the God of Christianity is like, you have to look at the image of God, which is Jesus himself. He has been given to make the invisible God visible. There are Christological ways to make sense of some of the parts of Christianity that seem difficult, but you have to start with Jesus. So let me counsel you, if that is you and you find yourself in that spot, just pick up the Gospels, start reading the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Encounter Jesus. Pray that God would reveal to you the person of Jesus. And in seeing the person of Jesus, you will find the person of the Father and the entire triune Godhead. Let yourself be led to God through the person of Jesus. So lay aside all of your other non-Jesus hesitancies and just start with Jesus. Now, a word to Christians is along the same lines. Right? As you seek to grow in the knowledge of God, don't ever stop starting with Jesus. Don't ever stop starting with Jesus. There's no point in our Christian life where we begin with Jesus and then Jesus sort of kind of gets us in the door and we're like, whew, I'm in the door. And then we move on to the depths of who God is, right? Jesus is the depths of who God is. He is the door. He is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. He's the whole shooting match. He leads us into the fullness of the Godhead, but not in such a way that we get done with him. Right, you can think about maybe in kind of American uh, uh, wedding traditions, right? That the, the, the father leads the, his daughter down the aisle and then he hands her off to, the, to her future husband. And there's some sense there in which the father is saying, she's no longer my responsibility, now she's your responsibility. I've done my work, now it's on to the husband to do his work, whatever that's going to mean, right? But that's not a picture that we should have of salvation. Jesus doesn't, lead us down the aisle to the Father, as it were, kind of gain us access into the grace and the family of God. And then, having left us at the door, into the room with the Father, he goes back to find other people. He is with us the whole way. And so as we conceive of and think about our relationship with God and what it means to grow in our relationship with God, we are never done starting with Jesus. I can think about in my own life um, that there was a, season, I think, well, I didn't have this all worked out like I just said it to you, but I think subtly and 
and without thinking it all the way through, there was a sense in which I saw my relationship with God, like what I just described to you, that Jesus had been my access to God, but, but now I was relating to God somehow independent or past Jesus. And I gradually began to lose focus on Jesus as the foundation upon my relationship with who God is. And I began to think about God more a bit in the abstract, and I, as I lost intimacy with Jesus, I, in consequence, lost intimacy with God. Because God is not in the abstract. He's not an idea. He's not a life force. Right? He's a person. But the way into the person, the persons of the Trinity, whom God is, can only be done through the person of Jesus Christ. And Jesus helps us retain the personhood of God. And so if you lose your grip on God and you find yourself perhaps struggling to regain intimacy with Jesus, maybe that's where you're at this morning, right? Is, is God is more and more just becoming to you an idea, a concept, a religion. And you believe in the religion and you believe in the concept and you believe in the idea, but you can't seem to find your way to a person in there. Come back to Jesus. Re restart your relationship with God through Jesus. You too go back and start reading the Gospels. Re-encounter Jesus. Start praying to Jesus. Start thinking about your relationship with God as a relationship with Jesus. One of the best parts of evangelicalism and the evangelical tradition, and we have a lot of things that aren't great about the evangelical tradition, but one of the best parts of it is how evangelicals talk about having a personal relationship with Jesus. That is the foundation upon which our entire relationship with God is based, our personal relationship with Jesus. So, Lay aside God in the abstract and just focus in on the person of Jesus and let him lead you into the fullness of God. All right. So Jesus is the image of God. He is the way into and reveals the fullness of God. So what does the image of God, Jesus, then reveal about God? And how does that relate then into this uh, call that we have to bear God's image out into the world. What does it mean that Jesus, or what, or we could say it like this, what does Jesus as the intrinsic image of God reveal about God? I'm going to give you the answer here at the front end, then we're going to work it out through the text and the remainder of our passage. Jesus reveals that God is a God of sacrificial, humble love. All right, to make this point, Paul begins by extolling the greatness and the power of the Son. So he tells us in verse 15, the second half of verse 15, that Jesus is the firstborn over all creation. The term firstborn is a technical term of the ancient world. It doesn't primarily refer to birth order, but to birth right. Whichever son was going to inherit the father's estate was known as the firstborn. 
And that was typically the son who was born first, but it wasn't always the son who was born first. You might remember the story of Jacob and Esau. Esau was born first, but Jacob stole the birthright and became the firstborn, right? So when Paul says that Jesus is the firstborn of creation, he means that Jesus has the rights of inheritance to the entire creation. He is the rightful heir of the whole shooting match. And when Paul goes on to say, and then Paul goes on to say in verse 16, that all things were created by the Son. He's going to be emphasizing over and over again the preeminence of Jesus, just saying the same thing with a lot of different metaphors and images. The, Paul goes on to say in verse 16 that all things were created by the Son, not only the visible things, but also the unseen things, the heavenly things and the heavenly realms, which means that the Son is the creator of all thrones, all dominions, all rulers, and all authorities. There's nothing above him, Paul is saying. And not only were all things created by him, but they were also, as Paul says at the end of verse 16, created through him and for him. All things were made for the Son, by the Son, through the Son. In verse 17, Paul tells us the Son is before all things, not was before all things, but is before all things, and that in him all things hold together. In other words, the Son is not simply the sovereign power of eternity past that got the whole thing going and then he was done and stepped away. He's the sovereign power of eternity present who holds all things together. And then in verse 18, Paul says that the son is the head of the church, the people of God, that he's the firstborn from the dead, meaning that he is the rightful Lord and ruler of both the realm of the living and the realm of the dead. And in everything, he has preeminence. I wanted to sum up all that Paul is saying in verses 15 through 18. It's that word preeminence. Jesus has the full preeminence of all things. And then in verse 19, to underscore the intrinsic nature of the Son as an icon of God, Paul tells us that in the Son, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Jesus as the one true sign of God's supreme power is one with the one that he signifies. Now, there's a lot there, and we're still dog paddling in the deep end of the pool. But the point that Paul is pushing towards is that the supremacy of the Son as the image of God is the visible manifestation of God's supremacy. When we see the complete and utter transcendence of Jesus, we are seeing the complete and utter transcendence of the Father. That's what it means that the Son is the image of the invisible God. The Son's greatness reveals and is the Father's greatness. The Son's absolute sovereignty reveals and is the Father's absolute sovereignty. The Son's preeminence reveals and is the Father's preeminence. But now we get to the good part, because all of that transcendence wouldn't do us any good. If all that God was was transcendent and great and wholly other, it wouldn't do us any good. Look at verse 19. For in him... In the Son, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things. God was pleased to dwell in the Son and through the Son 
to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. All the preeminence and power of the Son, which reveals and is the preeminence and power of God, was humbly and sacrificially used in love to secure our redemption. The preeminent one who sits eternally enthroned above all other thrones, who made all things and who rules all things, freely and willingly reconciled us through the blood of his cross. When he could have lorded it over us, he used his lordship to serve. When he could have made us his servants, he became our servant. He who is the living image of God's power used power to bless the weaker, the lesser, even at great cost to himself. And here's the thing that I want us to see. Paul is bringing together two things that are extraordinary. The preeminence and greatness and transcendence of Jesus and the humility and the love and the self-sacrificing of Jesus. He's bringing them together. In the same way that Jesus and his preeminence reveals and is the Father's preeminence, Jesus' sacrificial love reveals and is the Father's sacrificial love. Which is to say that in the same way that the Son is the image of God's transcendent power, he is also the image of the heart of God, God's sacrificial love. Another way to speak about the sacrificial love of God is to speak about the humility of God. How often have you thought about humility as an attribute of God? If you've heard Pastor Johnny talk, you've speak, you've, you've thought about it because he talks about it a lot. But how often do we think about humility as an aspect or an attribute of God? Of Jesus, sure. I mean, he became incarnate. He lived a humble life. He became a servant. But the Father... Is the Father humble? Yes. Eternally, yes. That's the whole point of what it means that Jesus is the image of God. To see Jesus is to see the Father. To see the humility of the Son is to see the humility of the Father. The humility of the Son is not an image of the Son's humility. The humility of the Son is an image of the Father's humility. The image has to image something. What is the image imaging? The image is imaging God's humility. That's how we get humility. It comes from the Father, who is the fount of all divinity. The church in the fourth century got into a big debate about all of this. And on one side, folks said, no, God is not humble. He's grand and he's great, and he's transcendent, he's exalted, and he is completely other. It's contrary to the divine nature to be humble. And that's why God sent Jesus, they said. Jesus is the humility that God can't be in himself. And so committed were they to the non-humility of God that they argued that Jesus was not fully divine. 
And that's how we got Arianism. But the other side insisted that the Son was indeed the true image of God, an intrinsic icon that fully revealed the nature and character of God, and that the Son's humility was not a mere feature of his humanity, but a clear revelation of his divinity. They insisted that only an eternally humble God would have been willing to bridge the gap between God and creation in the first place. It takes a humble God to move towards incarnation. And the pro-humility side won the day, and they wrote it all down in the Nicene Creed, which Christians all over the world have been saying on Sundays for the past 1,600 years. And the great truth of Nicaea, which is the great truth that Paul is talking about here in Colossians, is that the image of the Son reveals the Father. The image of the Son's transcendence and His humility reveals the Father's transcendent humility. Reveals it in the depths of eternity past, in the expanse of eternity present, and for the rest of eternity future. The nature of God overflows with humble, self-sacrificial love. Jesus isn't the good cop to the Father's bad cop. Jesus is the full expression of God's humble love to the world. If you want to know what the Father is like, if you want to know what God is like, this is why we look at Jesus. The entire Godhead radiates and pulses with humility and sacrificial love. All right, now let's paddle our way back to the shallow end of the pool where we can put our feet down and stand and let's see if we can bring this all home as it relates to evangelism and outreach. We human beings, in being created and called to bear the image of God to the world, are being called to bear Jesus to the world. Jesus is the image of God. Jesus doesn't just bear the image of God. He is the image of God. That's what we bear to the world. He's what we bear to the world. And the image of God that we are called to bear to the world, the image of God that we are called to bear to the world was hung on a cross. If you want to know what the image of God looks like, it looks like that. That's the image of God. In sacrificial love, for his enemies. That is the humble love of God. Which means as we consider what it means for us to bear the image of God as witnesses to the world, the primary thing that we're to be about, it's not necessarily to be moral. It's not always to like make sure you don't tell any lies, study the Bible really hard, go to church every Sunday. Those are all great things. But the primary thing we are called to do is to live out and embody the self-sacrificial love that God has revealed in the person of Jesus. Which means that we bear the image of God when we bear our crosses. Every time we willingly and freely use our power, whatever power we have, we're not transcendent like Christ is transcendent, but we all have some measure of power. Every time we willingly and freely use our power to sacrificially bless others, we are bearing the image of God that is Jesus. 
Every time we turn the other cheek and pray for those who persecute us or love our enemies, we are bearing the image of God that is Jesus. Every time we choose the hard path of obedience in love for the sake of others, we are bearing the image of God that is Jesus. So as we consider the connection between outreach, mission, evangelism, and bearing the image of God, we must always remember that what communicates the truth of God to the world is love. Costly love, not least. Costly love sees the need of the other and then meets it without regard to oneself because we know that God has seen our need and he is meeting it in Jesus. Jesus doesn't ask us to bear every cross that we see in the world. Not every cross is ours to pick up. That would be exhausting and overwhelming. Maybe you've lived your life like that. Jesus bears all of our crosses. But we don't have to bear everybody's cross. But he does call us in bearing the cross that he's appointed for us invariably to help others with their cross. He will call us to cross bearing, not just our own, but others. And it's in bearing the crosses of others as Jesus directs us that the message of God's eternal cross bearing love is made manifest in the world. So as we contemplate Missions Month here, setting aside the month of November to really reflect on God calling us into a place of missions, I would just ask this question at the beginning of that month. Where is Jesus asking you to bear the cross of someone else? Again, not every cross, right? You don't have the, you don't have the capacity or the bandwidth for every cross. But where is he calling you to bear the cross of someone else? to trust in the fact that he has borne and is bearing your cross so that you are now freed up now that you are protected and loved by Jesus and connected back with your eternal loving heavenly father. Now you have some space to bear the cross of others. Who is he calling you to bear the cross of? Let that be a question that guides you throughout the remainder of this month. Bearing the cross, though, as we finish up here, bearing the cross is not something that we do in our own natural strength. It's only because the image of God, it's only because of the image of God that we are called to bear, was hung on the cross and suffered and died on our behalf, that we are made able to bear the image of God to the world. So verses 11 through 14, which we didn't read, but in those verses, Paul prays that God would strengthen the Colossians with all power according to his glorious might, that they might give thanks to the Father who has qualified them to share in the inheritance of the saints of light. It is God who qualifies us to share in the inheritance of the saints of light. It is God, he goes on to say, who delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. As we contemplate the great task of bearing the image of God to the world, we have to always remember that God is the one who strengthens us by his power to give sacrificially of ourselves. And it is God who grants us forgiveness of our sins and we fall short.
because we don't bear our cross or the crosses of others always as we should. But God is gracious, and his own cross-bearing is the reminder, the own image of Christ on the cross is our reminder that he loves us unconditionally. It's because the beloved son has made us beloved children of the same father that we are able to bear the image of God. Father, thank you that you have made us and are making us, you are conforming us, as Paul says in Romans 8, to the image of the Son. And we confess that there are times when we don't really want to be conformed to the image of the Son. Because the Son that we see is not just high and exalted, he's also hanging on a cross. And we don't want, we don't want that. But God, we do want that. We want to be used by you to be a blessing in the lives of others. And so keep conforming us to the image of your son. Keep loving us. Thank you that you have allotted for us our own unique journeys. You don't ask us to do everything. The weight of the world doesn't rest upon our shoulders. We're not responsible to be Christ. Just help us to be little Christs, just little images of of the the redemptive love that you have for the world to those around us. God, move in our hearts as a church, move in our hearts as a congregation, move in our hearts as individuals, Lord, to keep leading us to yourself. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. As we close out this service, let me invite us to go all the way back to the beginning, to Jesus' cross work in our lives, to be reminded of who we really are. And it's as we come to terms with who we are in Christ, bearing his image out into the world becomes possible. So let's sing it out.